Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sachin Panda. Sachin Panda is a professor in the Regulatory Biology Laboratory at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. His work focuses on chronobiology, the study of day-night cycles that drive multifaceted activities of the human body using genetic, genomic, and biochemical approaches. He is an expert on circadian rhythms and a pioneer in the concept of time-restricted eating, or, as it has come to be known, intermittent fasting. Dr. Panda has been focusing on translating data regarding the impact of circadian rhythms on human health to legislation that protects people from the dangers of circadian disruption. Sachin has been a champion of circadian health and was among the first to identify the role blue light plays in circadian signaling. He has been spreading the word about the importance of maintaining strong light-dark cycles and is a proponent for circadian-friendly architecture and carefully considered rotations for shift workers. Before we start, I'll give a little background on what Sachin and I talk about today. Circadian rhythms are the body's 24-hour cycles of biological, hormonal, and behavioral patterns. These rhythms modulate a wide array of physiological processes, including the body's production of hormones that regulate sleep, hunger, and metabolism, ultimately influencing body weight, performance, and susceptibility to disease. Circadian rhythmicity has profound implications for human well-being and health span. I feel absolutely privileged to have had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Panda. I have been a huge fan of his work for many years now, so it was surreal to have a conversation with him. He is incredibly humble and modest, and was so gracious to lend me some of his time. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for coming to speak with me today, Sachin. It's uh, an absolute honor. I've been wanting to speak with you for a really long time. Uh, I guess I was wondering how you got into studying circadian rhythms, uh, particularly back in a time where they may not be as may not have been as popular as they are today. Yeah, so that uh, almost 20, 25 years ago, <laughs> it was not that popular. But at the same time, um, like 25, 30 years ago, people are all focused about on how gene X does Y and whether we can develop a drug against gene X. And then I realized that, you know, we are not the same person in the morning versus evening and our health, when we say someone is healthy, it has a very different definition depending on the time of the day. Being healthy in the morning means being a lot full of energy and being able to solve complex math or complex problem. Whereas late in the afternoon, being healthy and fit means you should be playing um, and you should be winning the game or sports, whatever you're doing. And late in the evening, being healthy means emotionally smart so that you can take care of your family business and uh, you know interpersonal relationship. And at night, being healthy means having a good night of sleep. So this biology of time or how timing of the day influences our health uh, was really striking to me. So I thought, well, if there are not too many people working in the field, then this is a good opportunity to get in because there are quite a few things to discover. So <laughs> that's how I got into this field. Um, so did you start out working with um, plants rather than uh, in animal models for circadian rhythms? Yeah, so I is, uh, very few people actually know that I started with plants because plants do have circadian rhythms. And in fact, the reason why we can feed 7 billion people with plenty of nutrition and food is because the plant biologist knowingly or unknowingly selected plants that had, you can say, broken clocks so that plants can flower in any time of the year. So for example, most of you know that certain flowers bloom in one season, not the other. Similarly, many crop plants produce flowers and produce grains or fruits and vegetables. They're programmed to do that only in one season, but then plant biologists unknowingly selected plants that had mutations that flower irrespective of what season it is. So that's how we increased food production. So. That was really fascinating to me. And in fact, in the history of circadian rhythm, the very early observations that 
organisms have rhythms outside humans were in plants because plants raise their hands and <laughs> droop their leaves. You can say <laughs> leaves are like hands um, between day and night. And those of you who know sunflowers, sunflowers track the sun. So plants are awesome for studying circadian rhythms. And just for in broad strokes, what, what are circadian rhythms and, and what impact do they have on our physiology? Yeah, so circadian rhythms are daily timetables uh, by which almost every gene, every hormone, every brain chemical are programmed to rise and fall within 24 hours. So these programs enable uh, every cell, every organ, to achieve that peak performance at a specific time of the day, and also repair, reset, and rejuvenate every day so that they can be ready um, the next day. So the word circadian literally comes from means approximately 24 hours, and um, which means that everything in our body is programmed for these 24 hours rhythms. And circadian rhythms essentially serve three main purposes. One is to anticipate. So for example, in anticipation of waking up, your body has to warm up. You have to start breathing a little bit faster. Your heart has to pump slightly faster so that when you wake up with the right time of the circadian phase or your timetable, then you feel more alert and ready to go and do stuff. And you can easily experiment with yourself or everybody has experienced it. Like if you set an alarm clock to wake up two hours before you're supposed to wake up, you feel crappy because your circadian rhythm hasn't prepared your body. The second is reaction. So first is anticipation, second is reaction. So for example, in response to a meal in the morning, our body produces enough insulin so our blood glucose level doesn't go too high. Whereas late at night, um, our circadian rhythm is anticipating that we should not eat. So when we eat the same meal late at night, the body doesn't produce enough insulin, so our blood glucose level goes super high. Um, so this is a way by which our circadian rhythm modulates how we react to things. And meal is one thing. So similarly, in response to exercise, our response is very different between day and night. And then the third function of circadian rhythm is repair and rejuvenation. Just like I said, um, just like our brain repairs itself, rejuvenates, we strengthen our memory at nighttime. Similarly, every organ, every cell has to repair itself. And by doing so, we also rejuvenate. And for certain things, like for example, inflammation, if we are fighting disease, inflammation went up, it has to come down. Otherwise, we'll be chronically inflamed. And circadian rhythms help us to damp down what has been activated and to bring us back to normal. So these are the major functions. And as you can imagine now, almost every organ, every cell in our body needs a healthy circadian rhythm to be fully functional to let us leave our peak performance. So you mentioned we've got these circadian programs. Um, what, what are the major influences that tune these programs to precisely the right uh, timing so that our bodies are doing the right things at the right time? So we all are born with a very strong circadian rhythm. And that means we have these very ancestral um, rhythms that are encoded in our DNA. And to adapt because these rhythms are present because our planet revolves around its own axis and there is a 24 hours day and night cycle. And with 24 hours day and night cycle, there is plenty of light and energy during daytime and darkness and cold and more humidity at night. So since we evolved on this planet for the last 200,000 years, we are programmed to adapt to this daily cycle. At the same time, because the tilt of our planet and the elliptical path it takes around the sun, our day and night cycles are very different between summer and winter time. So that means our circadian rhythms has to adjust to this change in season. And this adjustments happens uh, primarily due to light. So our rhythms are reset and adjusted to the first 
ray of sunlight if we are living in nature. And since uh, during daytime, we are programmed to eat um, because our ancestors went out for farming or hunting during in the morning, um, our body circadian rhythms are also tuned to what time of the day we, re we receive our first calorie. So this is how the system should work. But in the last 150 years, after the invention of electrical lighting, we could light up the evening and now we have 24 hours light. And with electricity and, and with lighting um, came two other things, that is food production and fruit preservation. So we can eat any time of the day or night. And the third thing that happened was infrastructure development. Infrastructure is the method to move people, product, information, and waste from one place to another place with minimum human physical activity. So that means we also become sedentary because being active during day and being sleeping at night is also another strong modulator of circadian rhythm. So now we have constant light, I would say twilight, because we actually don't go outside. We stay indoor and exposed to light at night when there should be dark and then less light during the day because our indoor lighting is not as bright as the light outside daylight. And then we have constant access to food. So we tend to eat uh, mindlessly late into the night. And even in some people wake up in the middle of the night and if they cannot go back to sleep, they just do eat. eat. And then we don't have physical activity much, too much. So as a result, we all have broken circadian rhythm or disrupted circadian rhythm. And it's much more pronounced in people who do shift work, uh, who switch between day and night shift. And nearly 20% of the population, sorry, working adults in industrialized countries do shift work. And then I would say there is another 20% who lead the life of a shift worker. So for example, students, high school students, college students, they stay up till midnight to do their homework and then they go to bed around one or two in the morning and they sleep in till midday in the weekend. So they experience what we call circadian, sorry, social jet lag. And then we do have secondhand shift worker. Uh, the spouses of shift workers, they think that it's good to give company to their spouses who are doing this hard work. So they stay up late into the night or wake up too early before sunrise. And they also suffer from circadian disruption. So as a result, only in the last 30 to 40 years, uh, due to this rapid industrialization and neglect, not neglect, actually, we did not know the awesome power of circadian rhythm. So because of that ignorance, we all suffer from this circadian disruption. Yeah, I, I suspect a lot of people know what it likes, what it feels like to be jet lagged, um, particularly when you take a long flight. Um, but like you said, most of us are experiencing a minor form of that in social jet lag, essentially all the time. So what can what can the the issues that arise out of this social jet lag be like? How how broad are the are the implications of continuous social jet lag? Well, the first thing is uh, if we take a we just think about how it feels like um, after a real jet lag, <laughs> or if you stay up all night, or say we went to bed two or three in the morning. And then next day you have to go to work at eight o'clock, then how it feels? It feels really crappy because you, uh, when you say it feels crappy, that means our body is not ready to wake up in the morning. Our circadian clock hasn't prepared our body to wake up. You're waking up against our clock. And then we drink a lot of coffee to thinking that we can wake up, but actually uh, coffee just makes your mind works a little faster, but at the same time, your motor coordination, your thought processes are not optimum yet. So you are more likely to make some mistakes. Then what happens is since um, your digestive system is not ready yet and you st start eating right after you wake up and then you have indigestion, you feel kind of um, a food hangover, you can say. <laughs> and 
then when you th when you think about it, most of us we feel like okay, we cannot make the right decision when we haven't slept well, and you are thinking about decision, say about a complex task, but at the same time, in a day we make more than two hundred different decisions about food itself, what to eat, how much to eat, in what combination to eat, when to start eating, when to stop eating, <laughs> with whom to eat all of this. So what happens is when we don't have that good night of sleep, we have circadian disruption, we tend to do mindless eating, we crave for energy-dense diet, and we also crave for more food because our brain is thinking that, I don't know how long this person will be circadianly disrupted or will not get enough sleep. So since brain consumes a good amount of energy, it also tells our body to eat more. So all of these might, you might feel that, okay, so this is not much, uh, but what happens underneath those who have immune system disorders, uh, those who have autoimmune disease, for example, that can clear up. Your gut may not work very well. You might have indigestion. So if these things continue from weeks, months, a year, then what we're finding is there are nearly hundred or more different diseases for which the risk goes up. And the list goes from anywhere from ADSD, depression to obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, for example, many types of cancer, even dementia. So then the question is, well, how much of disruption is too much? <laughs> so yeah, when I say shift work-like lifestyle, the the definition of shift worker or living the life of a shift worker is um, roughly staying awake for two or more hours between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. for one night every week or 50 days in a year. And now if we think about it, almost all of us kind of experience shift work-like um, lifestyle. Um, and then in a short term, people can also experience, for example, you can take healthy, perfectly healthy people. And if they, if we disrupt their circadian rhythm by creating this jet lag like paradigm where the light dark cycle is shifted by four or five hours, or the people are getting less than six hours of sleep, then within a week, these healthy people will show signs of insulin resistance. So that means that blood glucose level will rise to a point where they may be diagnosed as pre-diabetic or even diabetic. And certain circadian disruption can also trigger heart attacks. So for example, the best example is when daylight saving time and standard time, those changes happen, particularly when we have to wake up one hour earlier than before then those are the days when the number of heart attacks actually go up in the morning because people are waking up before the circadian rhythm has prepared our heart to wake up. So these are some of the examples where uh, the first thing that will happen is you might feel suboptimal. Second is if you have underlying condition that can flare up. And if you continue to do uh, live like a shift worker with circadian disruption, then risk for many chronic diseases will go up. The fourth one is if you are already diagnosed with a disease. So for example, people with diabetes, if they're taking diabetes drug, but they're shift workers, then their drug may not be helping them as much as if they were not living the life of a shift worker. So I kind of discuss all of this in two of my books, the circadian code, and then the other one is the circadian diabetes code that just came out recently. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to dig a little bit more into diabetes because obviously it's the subject of your new book. So I guess it may be difficult for people to conceptualize how, you know, staying up to midnight watching TV could um, eventually contribute to their insulin resistance. So could you dig a little bit deeper into um, how circadian disruption is causing these met metabolic abnormalities that um, are reminiscent of type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so uh, type 2 diabetes, are, um, the previous step is pre-diabetes when you are not type 2 diabetes yet, but you are, the blood glucose is not healthy. 
Um, so at least in the US, uh, nearly one in two, nearly half of the adult population has pre-diabetes or diabetes. And the, our, uh, and then when we, when we talk about diabetes, particularly in the US using the metric scale, then it's uh, when your blood glucose is above 100 milligram per deciliter, but it's below 125 milligram per deciliter, that's when you are pre-diabetic. And if it goes above that, the fasting blood glucose, then you are diabetic. So now the question is how circadian disruption or how circadian rhythm uh, and blood sugars are connected. So one way uh, we are designed is to actually eat only within a certain number of hours and fast for the rest of the hours. And if we think about it, it's actually a very narrow window of eight to 10 hours within which we should be eating because our pancreas that produces insulin and also many other digestive juice, our stomach, our liver, muscle, and fat cells. These organs that are intimately involved in glucose regulation, they all have circadian rhythms and particularly the genes, proteins, and hormones that maintain our blood glucose, they rise and fall at different time of the day or night. So having a healthy circadian rhythm helps us to maintain blood glucose. But when we eat at the wrong time, or when we eat over a long period of time, within a, over a long window of time every day, then our circadian rhythms get disrupted. So our fasting hormones and our paired hormone our muscles, gut, and liver, they don't work pretty well. So they disrupt our glucose regulation process and our blood glucose levels can go up. So now let's connect all these rhythms, how, they're connect, how they help uh, maintain blood glucose level. So I say that uh, you have to eat within eight to 10 hours to have a healthy blood glucose level. Uh, and people get confused because how come our brain gets to sleep seven to eight hours, but our gut and our rest of the body has to be without food for 14 to 16 hours. The reason is after we eat our last meals at dinner, uh, our stomach actually works on that meal for next five hours. So although one may be finishing food at 6 p.m., the stomach is still digesting that food and liver is still figuring, absorbing and converting that uh, food into different biomolecules for at least next five hours. So that's at 11, until 11. So when we eat for a long period of time, then a body doesn't get enough time to, to absorb that nutrient and maintain that properly. And another thing that happens is uh, pancreas, which produces insulin that helps muscles and other organs to absorb extra glucose, pancreas has a clock. So it, it, is, it has a narrow window of say eight to 10 hours when it's most responsive to food to produce enough insulin. And when we eat late into the night, then the pancreas doesn't produce enough insulin in response to late night meal and our blood glucose level can go up. And the third one is our muscles can actually, if we are physically active, then our muscles can absorb a lot of glucose without, the, without any help from insulin. And we humans are actually designed to be more active late afternoon and evening because our ancestors, when they were going for farming or hunting, they can start any time of the day, but all of them had to run back to the home before evening because in the old days, there was not enough electrical lighting. The highways, there was no highway and there was no light. So if we go back to population who are still living without electricity, we see that a huge spike in physical activity in late afternoon and early evening. And when we, as we have reduced our physical activity late in the afternoon and evening, um, we are not getting that extra boost from our muscle to absorb that extra glucose. So all of these things contribute to uh, elevated uh, blood glucose level. 
Then one thing that we touched upon in the uh, uh, in the beginning was sleep. Um, when we sleep, our brain actually gets enough rest, and then next day um, we make better decision about food. And when we're sleep deprived, then we make bad decision. So as a result, we tend to eat more sugary food and unhealthy food. So these are this is another indirect way that uh, circadian disruption can increase blood sugar level. Yeah, this is, it's all very fascinating. And uh, it's been something I've been really interested in for a really long time. And what you've been talking about here, I believe you coined the term uh, time-restricted eating or TRE. And you've done a bit of work with TRE in rodent models looking at longevity, um, if I remember correctly. Um, what impact does time-restricted eating have on um, longevity or, or extending health span for that matter? Yeah, so we started this work uh, calling it time-restricted eating, uh, which is now popular as intermittent fasting. People take it as eight hours eating and 16 hours fasting. So that's what that was our first experiment in rodents. Uh, now let's step back and ask what prevents people from living a long, healthy life. Um, because, you know, to live a long, healthy life is everyone's aspiration. To be at our peak physical, emotional, and intellectual health, irrespective of age, gender, ethnicity, or health condition is a universal aspiration, and I would say human right too. And if we ask why people are not living a healthy life. It's very simple because we are facing with a lot of chronic diseases. Um, in the US, nearly half of the adult population is pre-diabetic or diabetic. Nearly half of the population is also having high blood pressure. In our lifetime, four out of 10 people will get diagnosed with cancer. And in our lifetime, nearly half of the population will also have digestive issues or pulmonary issues, breathing problems, COPD, um, et cetera. So it's very clear that almost all of us have one or more chronic disease that we face or infectious disease, for example, now COVID and post-COVID. So then the question is, can we come up with a simple lifestyle formula that everybody, irrespective of age, gender, ethnicity, health condition can adopt and can help them to prevent the disease from occurring. And second, if they already have the disease, it will help them better manage that condition or get cured. And the third, if they are cured, they can get back to full functionality much faster. And if we think about, we really don't have anything that meets this criteria. We talk about a lot of longevity formula, longevity drug, and even supplements, et cetera. But if you think about, we don't have any single thing that will cure your diabetes and depression or COVID and cancer or dementia and pulmonary disease. The best we have is maybe a cold syrup that you take that will calm down your cough and make you sleep better. So along that line, what we find is time restricting or intermittent fasting is pretty powerful because in animal models now, we and many other labs have shown that it actually helps mice and laboratory animals to prevent obesity. And if they're obese, then it also helps them reverse that obesity. It can prevent and reverse liver disease fatty liver disease, for example. It can also prevent tumor formation, or if there is tumor, then the tumor growth slows down. Um, it also helps in animal models, various forms of hunt dementia or neurodegenerative disease, for example, Huntington disease, mouse model. And then the question is, can it extend lifespan? Uh, so uh, just, one more comment is there are many human studies on time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. And at least the first wave of studies that are called pilot studies because there are a very small number of individuals to see whether it's feasible and second, whether it's effective. They're also finding that time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting can help 
improve blood glucose levels so people can reverse their pre-diabetes or better manage their diabetes, can help them normalize their blood pressure, uh, hypertension, helps people to sleep better and also reduce inflammation. And there are many studies now ongoing to see whether it also helps cancer patients. So now, if you take healthy mice or healthy laboratory animals, then the question is, since they don't have any disease, can time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting keep them at high performance and also increase their lifespan? To come to high performance, we can take few indicators of performance when it comes to physical performance. For example, we can make mice run on treadmill and we can measure their endurance. And what we find is, yes, it actually helps mice double their endurance. That doesn't mean that humans will <laughs> double their endurance, but at least there will be improvement in endurance. And in some mouse models, we see the muscle mass also goes up. And this is very important because as we get older, um, a muscle mass goes down and also our muscle performance goes down. And time restricted eating or intermittent fasting can maintain that muscle mass and muscle performance. And then the third thing is motor coordination. We know that as we get older, our motor coordination kind of goes down the hill. So that's why many older people fall and they cannot run quickly. And we are finding that this motor coordination, which is a combination of quite a few different organ systems, because the brain has to tell the, our limbs to move in coordination. So the neuromuscular junctions have to perform pretty well, and then the muscles have to react, and then the feedback, so it's quite complex. If you think of it, that motor coordination also improves. Then as we get older, our heart function also deteriorates. Um, and in animal models, we see that the time restricting or intermittent fasting slows down that heart function deterioration. And of course, we also see the blood glucose level is much better maintained. So now if we combine all of these, then what we are saying is uh, animal, the lab animals, which are on time restricting, they live a long, healthy life. And in some cases, they also extend their lifespan by modestly by 10 to 15%. But still the big point is they live a long healthy life because modern humans, we all are faced with so many chronic diseases that we need some formula that actually helps us to fight all these chronic diseases. And one more thing with animals is these animals are also more resistant or resilient to infectious disease that we never Imagine, but it was a pleasant surprise that both male and female mice, when they go through time-restricted eating, if we challenge them with bacterial disease or infectious disease, then they better survive that disease. So we're super excited about it. And, you know, as, as I said, um, <laughs> these days, it's really hard to find a 50 or 60-year-old um, in Western countries who doesn't have any disease. I means I, I, I'm not saying that they don't exist, it's really hard. And almost more than half of the people at the age of 60 are on some kind of medications to manage their chronic disease. Uh, so in that yeah. case, we're thinking about billions of people who are living with some disease. And if time restricting or intermittent fasting can move the needle for even a million people or 10 million or 100 million, that's a big thing because it does not cost anything. You can practice it irrespective of what diet you are on. And it really caters to the central theme, the shared aspiration of everybody to live a long, healthy life. Yeah, it's wonderful to have a modality that works across uh, everyone uh, who, well, almost anyone can do it. Uh, and it affects almost every every part of our uh, of our biology uh, in in positive ways. So it's wonderful to have such a, a you know a simple and easy to explain um, sort of therapeutic option. I guess you could call it. Um, you mentioned there at the end that about medication and something in your first book that I found really interesting was this idea of 
chronopharmacology, the idea that uh, taking medications at certain times would help them perform better than if you took them at other times. So could you talk a little bit about um, this sort of circadian uh, aspect of uh, pharmaceuticals? Yeah, so when you think about pharmaceutical, every drug works because there is a target. So the drug goes and turns on or inhibits its target. And one thing that uh, was very profound in the field of circadian rhythm over the last 20 years is the discovery that almost every gene in our genome turns on and off at a specific time in at least one organ. So that means when I say gene is turning on and off, the gene product, which is a protein or a biochemical in our body, that also rises and falls at a specific time. And now if we think of a drug going and interacting with a protein in our body or a biochemical in our body, then now we can imagine that if the drug has to turn on a protein and if the protein is already high, then you need less drug to turn that protein on. Whereas you need more drug if you give it at the wrong time. Similarly, if the drug has to turn off something, if the biochemical or the protein is already at its trough or low point, then giving the drug at that time is more effective. And we know that almost every drug also has side effects, which are not very pleasant. So in that way, with that simple idea, now if we think of, now you can also relate how this connects with physiology. So for example, if you're going to take a sleeping drug to sleeping pill to help you fall asleep better, you're not going to take it in the morning. You have to take it before going to bed. Similarly, we know that our heart uh, and our blood pressure, for example, should actually go down, our blood pressure goes down in our sleep. So that means if you're taking a blood pressure medication to reduce your blood pressure, it's much better to take the blood pressure medication in the evening. And in fact, there was now multiple studies coming out showing that those who have hypertension, if you take your blood pressure medication at bedtime or evening, that has much better effect in preventing, preventing heart attack or stroke for the next five to 10 years. Now, if we extend it, um, you'll also find some paradoxical, seemingly paradoxical, <laughs> uh, optimal timing. So for example, people with arthritis have the toughest pain, the pain is more severe, the hand and legs are more stiff in the morning. But the events, the biochemical events that lead to that pain and stiffness in the morning actually starts in the middle of our sleep. So as a result, if people who take out arthritis pain medication at bedtime, they see much less pain and stiffness in the morning than taking the pain medication in the morning when the pain is high. So uh, now there is this, as you mentioned, there's this idea of chronopharmacology because nearly 70, 75% of drugs that we take for different indications that targets turn on or off at different time of the day. So there is intense pressure to see how we can harness this wisdom, this new knowledge to time medication to the right time to reduce adverse side effect and to improve efficacy. So for example, a lot of us, we don't take some of the prescribed drugs because it has adverse effect, whether we have muscle pain from statin or gastrointestinal problem from metformin. Um, similarly, there are quite a few adverse effects. So there's now intense study to figure out how to take the medication at the right time. And also another thing to keep in mind is since we can improve our circadian rhythm with time-restricted eating, then what will be really important to see is how we can combine time-restricted eating with the optimum timing of medication to accelerate cure or to optimally manage our health disease state without reducing performance. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating field of, of study and I, I can't wait to see more papers released looking at uh, optimal timing for these uh, pharmacological options. 
Um, I'd love to switch gears for a moment and talk about light. Obviously, yep. light is a very important um, zeitgeber or timekeeper for um, the circadian rhythms. And I believe your group was one of the groups to uh, look for melanopsin in the early 2000s, the blue light sensing um, photo pigment. Um, so what impact do you see the modern lighting, um, the, the use of modern lighting, these LEDs and fluorescence with a high blue content? What, what effect do you see that having on the health of, um, of people who use those in their, in their homes and workplaces? Yeah, so we made that discovery in 2001 and there was considered as one of the top 10 breakthroughs of the year by Science Magazine. And to be frank, at the time of the discovery, I had not fathomed the, <laughs> the health significance it would have. And what is interesting is to see how widespread it has been used, this discovery has been used to improve our health. And since it was very basic science discovery and you cannot patent light, so that also helped. So for example, the reason why most of your uh, smartphones, tablets, and even now televisions are now programmed to dim down uh, at night and change screen color is to reduce exposure to blue light at nighttime. And because blue light actually suppresses the production of melatonin, the sleep hormone. So having bright blue light in the evening will prevent the rise of melatonin. And we need that rise of melatonin for us to go to sleep at night. So now how can we use this information to improve human health? So we know that modern humans, we spend more than 90% of our time indoor, disconnected from outside world. So that means during the daytime, most of us spend up to 90%, at least say 85 to 90% of time indoor. And when you are outdoor, you are more likely to wear a sunglass that will cut down the light. But we are designed to get more blue light during daytime and less blue light in the evening. So that means when we have the choice of bright blue LEDs, can we combine this bright blue LEDs with dimmable or color tunable technology so that our indoor lights are more blue and raised during the day because we're not going outside too much. And then they have been programmed to dim down and or switch spectral quality so that they become more orange color. And of course, dim is better at nighttime. And the good uh, news is slowly, this is um, what is percolating in the light, lighting industry. So at least for indoor lighting, there is now more and more effort to design this kind of lighting. And if you go to stores, you'll also see color tunable LED lights. Uh, those used to be very expensive, but now you can buy a bulb, color tunable, dimmable bulb for less than $10, 10 USD. And uh, so now there is a technology to really simulate how we are supposed to live. We're supposed to live with better, more blue light during daytime and um, orange color light or firelight kind of light at night. So I'm super excited about that, about this human-centric lighting uh, that can simulate day and night. Yeah. I, um, I've been really fascinated. I have red globes in, in my room for, for precisely that reason. I, I wanted to get your take on um, the red tinted glasses that have been becoming quite popular that people put on at nighttime. What's your take on those? Because I've heard um, uh, people like Andrew Huberman and um, one of your colleagues, Sam Qatar, say that um, it's probably not the um, best thing to do for your physiology. We're not evolved to have, you know, entire um, colors removed from our, um, from our vision. So what's, what's your take on the blue blocking glasses? Well, as I said, it's uh, the timing matters because if you're wearing blue blocking glasses all day, then that's a different thing. <laughs> that, that may not be the right thing to do. Um, but blocking blue light 
two to three hours before bedtime can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to, so the bottom line is when it comes to any human activity or intervention, whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's wearable, like the blue blocking glasses, uh, all of them have optimum timing. <laughs> so even the blue blocking glasses have an optimum timing. You should yep. wear them two to three hours before bed because our ancestors, they when they had access to only firelight or candlelight, those are naturally blue blocking <laughs> light. Yep. There was no yep. blue light in them. So we have been optimized for <laughs> filtering out the blue light at nighttime. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to take a step back and revisit the topic of melatonin. Um, melatonin is a very interesting molecule. It's a hormone and it's an antioxidant. Uh, and we seem to be rather depleted of it these days because of our lighting environment. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on uh, supplemental melatonin for people as they age, particularly as they pass 40, because the melatonin production goes down, and also what the role of melatonin is in initiating sleep, because some people find that it doesn't put them to sleep, but it may help them sleep. Yeah, so melatonin is uh, really interesting in the sense, you know, this is one of the hormones that's not FDA regulated in the US. <laughs> the reason is, you can take, a, at least in mice, you can put a lot of melatonin and it doesn't have a LD50, it doesn't <laughs> kill mice. Um, having said that, the converse is also true, it means that laboratory animals and there are many humans who don't actually produce a detectable level of melatonin, but still they can go to sleep and wake up perfectly fine. So that means uh, it also highlights the fact that melatonin may not be necessary and sufficient to maintain sleep for most people. But at the same time, um, we also understand the fact that melatonin does have widespread effect and for a lot of people it does uh, affect sleep and it's also one of the one of the drugs where we don't know what is the optimum dose for everybody because we don't have a test that will tell you whether you need one make five megs or ten megs of melatonin think of any other hormone whether it's thyroid hormone insulin that a lot of people take there's a specific test and there are also other side effects that you can read out to see what should be the dose. For example, if you put too much insulin, then there is hypoglycemia. If you put too much thyroid hormone, then there are a lot of other problems. And if you do too little, so for melatonin, we don't actually have a clear readout. So that makes it difficult for people to decide how much melatonin they need. Some people may need a lot of melatonin, and some men need very little. And you always hear that in discussion. Some people will say, well, they can take one meg of melatonin and sleep like babies, whereas some will say they tried five meg and they did nothing. So unfortunately, this is a <laughs> drug for which we, we don't have much information because even if you take melatonin, uh, since the melatonin levels should go up in the middle of your <laughs> sleep, it's not the easy way that you can get up in the middle of the night and poke yourself, get some blood and figure out how much melatonin you have. Another thing is, even if you take melatonin supplement, then within half an hour, nearly 90% of whatever you have taken is degraded and is cleared from your cleared by liver and kidney. So then conversely, people think that maybe slow release melatonin might help and there are many slow-release melatonin in the market. And then finally, um, melatonin acts through its receptor, its target. So instead of melatonin, pharmaceutical companies have now developed melatonin receptor agonists. So these are melatonin-like molecules which will activate the target, but will stay for a longer time. But unfortunately, these are very expensive and they're prescribed only for certain conditions for example, non-24 hour syndrome, and some people who just cannot um, maintain their circadian rhythm. 
So the take home message from all of this is yes, the melatonin and its receptor, that axis definitely is involved in initiating and maintaining sleep. But if you're taking just garden variety, over-the-counter melatonin, it's really hard to figure out how much you need. <laughs> so that's why I tell people, if you're traveling, don't try new melatonin during your travel. Try to titrate, figure out how much you need uh, beforehand. Uh, also, since it's not regulated well, you have to get melatonin from a good source, from a company that's well-reputed and that has to be some QC on it. Yeah, I, I got really interested in this because I, I saw a, a, an article that uh, showed that some of the melatonin brands have up to a hundredfold difference in what they say is, is in, the, in the capsule. Um, yeah. And then I also um, heard a, a talk by Russell Ryder, who's probably the world's authority on yeah. melatonin, and he takes about a hundred milligrams of melatonin every night. So you know, <laughs> we really don't know what, what, what is the optimal yeah. dose and, and what it's doing. So it's an open discussion, but it, I hope it, I hope it continues. Yeah. Uh, I saw uh, an article a few years ago that was talking about exposure of skin cells to blue light and yeah. that light on the skin cells directly disrupted the circadian genes. Um, and this made me think that, you know, we're exposed to blue light, even on, on our skin, not even necessarily through our eyes. Um, mm -hmm. What impact could that be having on skin health um, in general? Well, the thing is, uh, that kind of illumination that was used in the experiment was extremely high, and uh, we don't get that kind of um, illumination of that type of light. And another thing is, you know, people have done these experiments again and again. Um, we don't see the impact of bright light going through any organ but the eyes. Uh, so uh, right now there is not much alarm that too much light on the skin will change our circadian rhythms. Okay. All right. Maybe <laughs> could it change it at a, at a local level or is it just that um, because these, these were... Um, in vitro studies. Yeah, so, so. The in vitro studies uh, always have to be, means at the end of the day, we want to see, can you illuminate, means people have done these studies again and again, they have taken even birds, mice, rats, where they, of course there you can, with ethical approval, you can remove the eyes and shine the hell out of them and see <laughs> whether they can reset their clock. And there was no sign that they could re-entrain their clock. Okay, so we don't have to worry about covering all of our skin at night. Just, just we need no. to focus on our eyes. Yes. Okay. Um, there's, there's a bit of talk. I've heard Matthew Walker talk about these chronotypes. You know, morning, morning, um, morning yeah. larks and night owls. And yeah. I've always been a little bit skeptical of this because I, I've thought, well what would happen if, you know, everyone was exposed to the same light, you know, they, you know, engaged in TRE, um, mm -hmm. would they eventually all start waking and sleeping at the same time? Uh, I'd love to know your thoughts on whether, you know, there are different chronotypes or whether it's just about the environment that, that each person is in. Well, the chronotype uh, do have some truth to them, but at the same time, you know, when you start thinking about chronotype, uh, most people will say that, hey, I'm a late chronotype because I cannot go to bed before midnight. And, but at the same time, if we ask, well, if you go on a, if you go on a camping trip where you are disconnected from bright, day, bright light uh, in the evening and are in daylight most of the day, what happens to you? And this is a simple experiment that, um, was done in Colorado. And what they found was a lot of people, a lot of students and trainees who self-described them to be late chronotype. And they actually had uh, melatonin rising very late into the night. When they went on camping trip, they all became normal. <laughs> they all felt sleepy and they went to bed. Uh, they were extremely sleepy by nine or 10 o'clock at night. So the bottom line is if you want to figure out what chronotype you are, then the best thing to do is to 
do caffeine deprivation for, <laughs> for at least a couple of weeks and try to, if you cannot turn off your light, then try to wear those uh, funky red sunglasses in the <laughs> evening and figure out whether you can still, <laughs> whether you are still staying awake till midnight or one o'clock. And if you don't, then you know that your chronotype is very different from what you think. But having said that, it's true that there are some people, but those people are very minority, very few people who really are very early chronotype, a very late chronotype. All right, that's that's really interesting. I I, I do like that that camping study because uh, yeah. I think it's I think it's very funny. Um, now I've heard a little bit about the more early morning and late afternoon being the most important times to view natural light as far as setting the circadian clock because of the um, the spectrum. There's less blue, a lot more red, a lot more yellow. Um, so do you see it? important to view light at those early times as, as opposed to going out in the middle of the day when the blue is the brightest or is it are they all important um what's what's the best for keeping a tight circadian rhythm well actually the blue light helps to reset our clock so you need to have that blue light in the morning or late afternoon and when you think of um so for example if you go out even half an hour before sunrise, we're likely to get 500 to 1,000 lux of light. And this is when it's not really red light. It's just diffuse white light, which is still blue and wrist. And why that is important is if you light up your room with a regular fluorescent bulb or any light that you have, then you cannot reach that thousand lux of light that easily. Most of our indoor lighting is around 100 to 500 lux. So that means just stepping outside around twilight time, you get much more light than what you can get indoor. So the bottom line is don't worry about uh, whether you should go out before sunrise and watch the nice, beautiful sunrise to reset your clock. Just go out because stepping out for 30 minutes <laughs> during the day, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, is really the challenge because most of us, when we think about how much time we go really outside and enjoy the daylight, um, there are very few people who do that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like you said, you know, we spend about 90% of our time indoors. So it is difficult to get the intensity of light, um, much less the, the spectrum as well. So trying to combine yeah. those two things, I mean, re really natural light is the way to go. And for example, when you're when you're driving, for example, you sit in the car and you put on your sunglasses. And if you actually put a light meter there inside your car without the direct sunlight, the light inside the car may be around five thousand lux. But many sunglasses will cut down nearly ninety percent of light. So that means your eyes are actually getting less than five hundred lux of light. Uh, which is similar to you sitting indoors. So although you may be outdoor, but with sunglasses, of course, I am not saying that you should not wear your sunglasses outside your car, but inside the car, anyways, your car windshields are UV filters. They, they don't allow UV to get in, um, but just be mindful about that. <laughs> when you are outside, just don't put on your sunglasses all yeah. the time. I did want to ask you about glass. What what impact does glass have on uh, lux light intensity? Well, if it is clear glass, then uh, most of our window, most of our glasses that are used for buildings, window, and uh, etc., they actually filter out UV light. So uh, that's pretty good. So because we are getting all the other spectrum of light indoor, and so the bottom line is if you're trying to build a house or if you're choosing a house, then look for houses with uh, big, large windows so that you have the choice to bring daylight indoor when you cannot go outside. And you know this becomes very important in this. COVID actually reminded us how important this is because think about um, if someone is exposed to COVID, someone got positive for COVID, there are times when we are asked to self-quarantine for 14 days indoor. And patients who are unfortunate to get COVID, they spend 
one or two weeks fighting the disease and also one or two weeks after COVID because they have to quarantine after the disease. So what is happening is a lot of people during COVID, they are disconnected from the day and night cycle. They're indoor and they have closed their windows. They have no sense of time. And that may be also contributing to the fog, the COVID fog and the long COVID syndrome because for almost two to three weeks or in some cases, four weeks, they did not get the strong light dark cue that we are programmed to get. And you can make that analogy with uh, patients who go to ICUs. Many ICUs do not have that distinct light dark cycle because it's always lighted. The doctors and nurses are coming in almost every one hour, two hours to check on you. And we know that nearly 30% of ICU patients within a week or two, they develop delirium because they just don't have any sense of time. So uh, coming back to your question about <laughs> glass, <laughs> we can see how uh, having large windows or even large, now glass has become so strong and manufacturing has changed So glass that is load bearing glass. So you can even substitute a wall with thick glasses. So you should think about using glass as a building material and blackout curtains on top of them to <laughs> make sure that you can create day and night cycle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what are you working on at the moment uh, in your lab? What, what, what do you see is the future for, for your research? Well, the thing, you know, um, for example, this time restricting or circadian disruption or circadian optimization, I see this is similar to the lead and asbestos moment in building materials. So for example, in seven, up to 70s, we used lead and asbestos in building without knowing the adverse effect it has on health. And you fast forward, even up to now it's 50, 50 years and we are still trying to <laughs> remove lead and asbestos and optimize our uh, building. So similarly, we just got aware about circadian rhythm and its uh, importance in life, uh, healthy living. So that means there is also a burden that we have to prove that circadian optimization is good for preventing, managing, reversing disease. And when you think of diseases, there are 100 or 200 different diseases. So trying different combinations and doing that and drilling down to the molecular mechanisms, that's, that will take a generation. And second is, we are circadianly disrupted, not by choice, but not solely by choice, but partly to a large extent because of the society and the social norms, the public policies we have. So starting from individual level, from molecules to public policy, <laughs> there are a lot of work to do. So a simple example is, you know, we know the circadian rhythm in teenagers is slightly different. During teenage time, we are designed to stay in bed a little bit longer, and we are not designed to wake up around sunrise, but a little bit after that. So what it means is when high school students are woken up at six o'clock so that they can go to school at seven, seven fifteen, then that's not the optimum timing. So demonstrating that delayed high school start time by eight or 8.30 is good for you. It took quite a few years, but now there are many uh, places where they have demonstrated that by delaying high school start time, you nurture better sleep work highs in and people, the students actually perform better, they feel much better. So this is one example of public policy affecting circadian rhythm. So for, for example, we did a study in Seattle um, school district in collaboration with Horacio D. Iglesia, who was the lead PI. And what it showed was by delaying the high school start time, uh, the students could sleep 34 minutes more. And why this is important is if you take a sleeping pill, you increase your sleep by 15 to 30 minutes. 
So that means that by delaying high school start time, where essentially it was equivalent to putting 53,000 students on sleeping pill for every day of the year. So this is an example of uh, public policy helping. So now coming back to shift workers and shift work like lifestyle, there can be better public policy, science-based policy to help people to live a healthy circadian life at the same time earning a good ways for their, for their uh, family. Uh, coming back to colleges, most colleges and universities now have um, assignment deadline at midnight. And students are staying awake till midnight to finish their assignment and going to bed at one or two o'clock. Why can't we make this assignments deadline at 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. so that the students can finish their homework and go to sleep? And in that way, you change the life of thousands and millions of students in a nation. So, you know, from molecules to public policy, there is a lot of scope. So <laughs> we are engaged in multiple levels through collaborations and through public engagement to make those changes. I'm also engaged with um, architects to incorporate the findings from circadian lighting for design, a better design to allow light coming in and also have uh, blackout curtains and buildings and bedrooms. So a lot to do. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's a huge job, but um, myself and I'm sure there are many, many people out there who are extremely grateful for your work. Um, I've got the first book here, The Circadian Code. Uh, I haven't got my hands on the second one yet, but uh, I'm really looking forward to reading The Circadian Diabetes Code. Um, which will be out shortly, I think, if it's not already out. Yeah, it uh, came out, but I'm sorry. I got to ask my publisher to <laughs> send it a copy. That's okay. I'll, 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 I'll get to read it as soon as yeah. I can, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I want to be mindful of your time, so I wanted to yeah. just say thank you so much for coming to speak to me. It's been an absolute honor. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you and have a perfect circadian day. <laughs> you too. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I genuinely hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did like the conversation, please consider getting one of Sachin's books, The Circadian Code, or his latest book, The Circadian Diabetes Code. Both are excellent books and have an enormous amount of information about everything circadian health. If you'd like to keep up with my work, Feel free to follow me on social media platforms using at Nutrition. I've got many more exciting guests lined up for the future, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. Take care, everyone.